one level, this paper has is a combination of, of bits of chapters, as it were, rather than a paper in its own um, in its own right. But is the first half will be very conceptual, um, and the second half will be much more ethnographic. But it's um, and that's because the book is situated within a, an interdisciplinary food studies series with the aim, really, of defining and extending the boundaries or the theoretical boundaries of food studies, if that can be done. Um, and because that, and my series editor told me the other day to stop thinking like an anthropologist. And I'm not entirely sure what to do with that advice, but I think he was talking about, don't be so data-driven, be kind of more conceptual-driven, and... Um, and use the data in a very kind of, with a light touch. So that's a very different way for working for me. You know, I kind of classically, I'll take the ethnography, I'll work from the theory rather than the theory the other way around. So we'll see how we go. Um, but I did the whole, initially, a little bit of Highland Ecuador in there in the title, in the older title, and because that's where most of the data will be set. So, but I'm going to start, actually, in Rotherham. Um, and I'm not necessarily going to come back to Rotherham, but I just want to kind of start off at this point, and then we'll end up in Highland Ecuador. So in 2006, Rotherham mothers were photographed passing junk food to children through the school's railings in protest of a school's approach to nutrition and its involvement with Jamie Oliver's healthy eating campaign. This moment and the ensuing media debate in many ways captures the multiple food body pedagogues, as I'm slightly clunkily referring to them in this paper, um, are drawn together in both alignment and contestation. In this particular context, the key protagonists were represented as parents, education professionals, the state and media personalities who took polarised positions in what was dubbed the Battle of Raw Marsh. Labelled sinner ladies and junk food mums, the mothers delivering food such as fish and chips were subject to particular criticism by sectors of the media, which not uncommonly depicted the women's actions as uneducated, misguided and ultimately detrimental to children's health. And there's an ongoing theme that I'm trying to pull out, um, not so much in this paper but throughout the book, around particularly the role that women play in certain classes of women play in kind of policing um, these sorts of boundaries and the ways other actors intersect with those. In contrast, the school and Oliver, while not immune from criticism, were regarded as working to improve the children's situation by ensuring they had healthy school meals. I draw attention to this moment, not least because it highlights subjective and contested notions of good food, but also indicates which social actors have the political and cultural authority to mediate or interfere to cite through so the eating practices of others. Moments such as the Battle of Raw Marsh tend to be framed as oppositional disputes between different food body pedagogues, with each seeking to influence how and what others, in this context school children, should or should not be eating. Yet I, yet I argue this typical framing overlooks one key actor in the process, that of the eater him or herself. It also glosses over the material and visceral experience of eating, such as taste, mouthfeel and the stomach's response. In short, the subjective affects and effects of food in the body. Consequently, one of the key elements of food, its very substance and our embodied encounters with that substance, is often obscured in debates about competing knowledges and cultural authorities of food, which in a way have been very much dominated in many respects by political economy and symbolic approaches. And these approaches have tended, though with some notable exceptions, to treat such discourses and political dynamics as divorced from and circulating outside the embodied experience of eating. In parallel, an alternative approach has drawn attention more recently, perhaps, to the visceralities and the vital materialities in foods in ways that disturb human centrism and established understandings of agency. And I'm thinking particularly here of the work of Jane Bennett, Mole, um, Elspeth Probin, and the Hayes Conroys, who come from geography. 
Arguably, however, this recent visceral turn does not, despite often being politically motivated, fully account for the political and economic reality of the contemporary food system. There seems to be a bit of a disjuncture between these, um, a, these two approaches, but also what a lot of the political, um, political ecology turn that's focusing on materialism and effects is, isn't quite getting to questions of political economy. As Goodman in Press has recently warned us, we have to be careful not to equate ontological agency with political agency. And he raises concerns about how a focus on visceral and material microprocesses and the resultant conceptualizations of distributed agency potentially obfuscate hard political structures. Visceral approaches, then, do not always address the critical questions about the capacity for some social actors to affect change, nor do they fully account for where or with whom political influence lies. It's almost this age-old anthropological question of, if we're looking at the microprocesses of the body and the individual, how do we get at these big structures? Um, And this is what I'm trying to do. Extending Goodman and my previous work with Anna Levis, who some of you will know, that works to account for the material, symbolic and political dynamics of food by focusing on eating specifically, my current project seeks to pick a way through and sew together aspects of these divergent perspectives to better understand how political experiences, or sorry, political influences are experienced in and negotiated by individual eating bodies. And, And I'm and one way I'm thinking, I'm wondering if I'm starting to, trying to reconcile two bodies approach that are irreconcilable, but I'm trying to pick my way through this. In so doing, I'm looking to embrace food's multifaceted nature and recognise the ways it exists both within and outside the body. My broader ambition is to develop a conceptual model of agency that accounts for A, the substance of food, B, the multiple often contradictory knowledges that are attached to that substance, see the political structures that bestow authority to those knowledges and the pedagogues that teach them, and then D, also, the actions of the individual eater to contest, appropriate, transform and reject any or all of the above. So I've kind of set myself a big task um, within this book that people go, oh, that's a bit ambitious, but we'll see. In particular... I wish to tease out the ways in which eating a specific food can at times uphold established food body knowledges and reinforce the authority of that pedagogue, whereas on other occasions it can can contest them by producing alternative knowledges, truths and understandings about food and which contain the vitality of its matter, and I'll kind of pick up that. I'm also keen to highlight the distinctions that exist between the food, the knowledge and the pedagogue, while also demonstrating the ways in which they're entangled. I'm conscious that um, I don't want to make assumptions that if you're, um, if you're eating a certain food, you're absorbing that knowledge or you're upholding that knowledge and then you're reiterating the authority of where that knowledge comes from. I think there's too much slippage in work that accounts for those sorts of things. So I'm trying to kind of tease out those differences. I aim to do so by interrogating the role of the eating body and explore not only the ways in which eating and not eating, importantly, draws together divergent human and non-human agents into networks of relatedness, but also how these processes co-produce food body knowledges and the dynamics of the relational power inherent within them, and thereby looking to account for the multi-directional and circulating flows of power that subject eaters and their bodies to particular notions of good and bad food, as opposed to something that's just bi-directional. To me, these things are all entangled together, whilst in, in turn exploring how eating reproduces the political authority on, what, in, on which knowledge claims rest. In essence, what I'm trying to do is take the dynamic that is evident in the example of raw marsh, that cultural authorities come between eater and, what, and that which is eater, sorry, eaten, and inverting it to consider how food and the act of eating mediate such authorities through the embodied co-production of knowledges. 
to this end, I'm drawing upon two core concepts, one which is bounded vitalism and the other which is biopedagogical encounters. So I'll take bio, bi, bounded vi, vitalism first. As Hayes Conroy and Hayes Conroy have recently argued, eating, due to its sensual, visceral nature, is a strategic place from which to begin to understand identity, difference and power. Eating is not, of course, the only form of embodied encounter individuals have with food, though I contend it's the critical one. Producing, selecting, preparing, cooking and serving food all indisputably involve the body. Inevitable questions thus emerge as to whether eating differs from those other embodied interactions, whether it should be distinguished as a particular object of investigation, and perhaps more importantly, how it can illuminate the power dynamics of food knowledges in ways that other embodied engagements with food cannot. This is a question I quite often get from food studies and people who like, why is, why is eating different from anything else? And somebody reminded me the other day that I think Marshall Stalin said... Um, at some stage, the least interesting thing we can do with food is to eat it. And I kind of find that a bit problematic as a term, because I think that's the purpose of food. This is a moment where it comes in. Uh, where am I? Eating is, however, unique in that it draws food into the body and ensures its corporeal survival. While other forms of relationships with food transform its material substance and make and unmake material substances as food, no other embodied encounter ingests food, thereby transforming its matter within the corporeal boundaries of the body, drawing on Fischler and Moll. Eating sculpts and produces bodies, then, as the substance of food is fragmented, uh, metabolised and biologically incorporated. Food's solidity is thus broken down and rendered into fragments that both pass through and become the eater's body. This process of transubstantiation, as Moll muses in her essay, I Eat an Apple, blurs the semi-permeable boundaries between eater and eaten. Prior to eating, these are two discrete entities, but upon ingesting and digesting, these two bodies become one. The body of the apple and the body of the eater get mushed in together, basically. In so doing, eating not only makes bodies in ways that other embodied food encounters do not, but also incorporates other bodies into that of the eater. As Moll continues, this has consequences in terms of the eater's agency, with some bodily processes lying outside an eater's control and remaining unmastered. The agency here, to draw also on Bennett's discussion of vitalism, lies with the matter of food and the ungovernable substances of the body. Um, so it's extent that kind of food reacts in the body in ways that we cannot always control. I wish to extend Moll's thesis by exploring the ways that knowledge is about foods and the political dynamics that produce them can be seen, conceptually at least, as bodies that are incorporated that into the eater. So into that of the eater. Just as Moll's apple is broken down, transformed, digested, rejected and reconstituted by eating, so too are the knowledges and networks of relatedness in which a particular food is situated. As Jessica Hayes Conroy argues, it is in eating that molecules of meaning and matter and discourse collide. The bodily boundaries of the eater are thereby stretched and blurred into these other bodies, rendering them too semi-permeable, again to draw on Moll and also law. Eating, then, as I've argued with Anna Lavis, goes beyond placing, uh, placing oneself in relation to others, just like Goody, and actively, accidentally, and haphazardly makes and unmakes those relations and others in the co-production of coterminous bodies. As we stated, the act of placing food in the mouth, landscapes, people, objects and imaginings not only juxtapose with, um, with each other, with and fold into one another, but are also reconstituted and reordered. Here, what I'm trying to do is take this more broadly to include food's attendant knowledges, which is slightly different from the meaning that I think we, we met when we wrote that, in recognition that food does not travel alone, but instead comes to us entangled within multiple relations, symbolic meanings and myriad understandings. 
These intangibles, I suggest, are made real in the sense that they are materially and explicitly experienced by eating. The corporal body can thereby be conceived as a culmination of matter, knowledge and social relations. Eating must, thus makes the knowledge-power dynamics of food materially manifest and as such opens up the possibility for such dynamics to be inscribed upon and contested by the eating body. Now, just as eating gives knowledge its materiality, knowledge bestows, eat, um, knowledge bestows food's vitalism. And this is maybe where I kind of diverge a little bit from, um, from Bennett, or my reading of Bennett at least. Bennett contends that food's vitalism is inherent in its matter, which he demonstrates to take one example through the, the affects and effects of, of fat upon the body. Yet she also points to the ways that this matter is just part of and situated in a broader assemblage that is established by our relationship with that particular object. For example, she draws on nationalist discourses. In essence, the vitality of matter, then, is bounded by this assemblage, which I'm taking here to include cultural practices, knowledges and social relations. To me, this suggests that vitality does not have infinite possibilities, but is instead contained by political and economic structures as well as human imagination and experience. The vitality of matter is therefore, it's not everywhere the same, but contingent on the relationalities in which it is embedded. Matter is made vital, at least in part, by human actions and relations. And I have to say, you know, I came, was trained in a classic economic anthropology type way, and I still find this notion that, um, I'm still trying to reconcile this notion of what I've kind of learned, that we do things to objects with objects doing things to us. And I'm trying to bring these two things together. Uh, without it sounding too kind of going veering off towards animism. The flaw in Bennett's argument, I think, then, is somewhat embedded within the argument that vitalism cannot be inherent in matter, but has to be instead bounded by human engagement with it. Moreover, not all human and non-human agents within such assemblages are created equal, and whether it's Deleuze and Qatari's vectors and operators or Latour's mediators, the language in, in, in these, we haven't quite, I think, found a, a useful non-conceptual lexicon through which to kind of think through these questions, becomes apparent that some agents have more affect and effects than others um, and over others. What I'm keen to explore here is how this influence is enabled and enacted through the contingent relationalities these agents have with the bodies of others. What I'm not trying to do is discern the extent of the influence of each. To do so, I think, would be contrary to my argument that such relations are continually being reproduced, circulated and shifted through multi-directional flows between myriad agents. Nevertheless, I'm aiming to elucidate how, in the assemblages of food, certain knowledges on food body pedagogues can be seen to be vectors, to you know, draw on to losing Atari, in that they attempt to define the boundaries of that assemblage. They, they shape what is possible in many respects. In short, they shape what we know, what we do not know, and what is accepted as truth about certain foods. Or they are creating, in the language of Bennett, the vitality, though against the ethos of Bennett, the vitality of the matter of food. This is, not, this is not premised on food's inherent vitality, as Bennett, I think, would have us believe, just as much as truths about food are not inherently true. Instead, I argue food's vitalism, uh, knowledges about such vitalism, and the sources of those knowledges are socially constructed. Furthermore, they are not created by one agent, or vector or mediator, depending on who you're following, but by the relationalities between multiple agents, including the individual eating body. From the perspective of the eater, then, multiple agents and the eater's relationship with them inform how matter is experienced in their own body by defining, through the production and circulation of food body knowledges, the boundedness of vitalism's assemblage. Right, that's vitalism over and done with. You'll be pleased to know. 
Um, okay, on to the second concept, which is biopedagogical encounters. I need to do a little bit of work to kind of join these two together, which I think will, will come out hopefully in the um, ethnography. So I'm further drawing theoretical inspiration from Wright and Harwood's uh, concept of biopedagogies, which they define in the context of obesity studies as the disciplinary and regulatory strategies that enable the governing of bodies in the name of health and life. Extending Foucault's concept of biopower, biopedagogical practices are defined as the art and practice of teaching of life. Put simply, they are the lessons that individuals learn about how to treat and comport their body, or in this case, they are lessons in what we should or should not be eating and how we should be eating it. The analytical interrogation of such lessons offers a way of empirically getting at the, the relationships and processes of the oft-concealed knowledge-powered bias dynamic that becomes inscribed and internalised upon the body or within the body. In essence, it presents not only a way that in which the key cultural authorities or pedagogues of food can be identified, but also a method through which their influence on individual bodies can be potentially be discerned, or more accurately, how their influence is constructed, mobilised and negotiated. The body is recognised then as a political space that is shaped and regulated by and resists particular life lessons, and also potentially the food body pedagogue from which such lessons emanate, allowing for the fact that I don't want to make assumptions that these two things are one of the same. And I'm defining them really as food body pedagogues rather than biopedagogues, um, in part to consistently draw attention to the food body knowledge nexus that I'm exploring, but also signal that my analysis is, is narrowed to food instead of just kind of all um, wider bio and life lessons. I should point out as well here that pedagogies are further understood here in their broadest, or I'm understanding pedagogies in their broadest public pedagogy sense, um, as relational cultural practices through which knowledge is produced. So it's much more thinking now towards a shift towards pedagogy as being between how knowledge is produced between the teacher and the learner, kind of co-produced, as opposed to it being one-dimensional, which kind of fits, and not only with my notion of kind of um, multi-relational flows, but also um, it aligns comfortably, I think more comfortably, with Foucault's model of relational power and its continuous production. And I'm not going to go into um, Foucault and how I'm using biopower here, but just to say that I'm kind of drawing quite heavily on Rabineau and Rose's definition as well, and particularly in the way that they point to an array of authorities considered uh, that biopower, or within this definition, biopower, an array of authorities considered competent to tell the truth. Similarly, Wright and Harwood attend to multiple pedagogical sites such as schools, doctors, surgeries, families and public health policies. Scant attention, I think, has been paid to the ways in which these multiple sites align, or not, with some exceptions, obviously, um, from the perspective of an, of an individual, or in the context of this discussion, the individual eater. So really what I'm trying to get at is, if I'm eating and I've got my family telling me something, I've got um, Jamie Oliver telling me something, I've got... You know, local communities, I've got health officials telling me something, they may at times be selling me all of the same things, and at times they may be selling me, telling me very contrary different things about um, food. How do I negotiate my way through those multiple knowledges, and how do I experience food within my body through those multiple knowledges, and then the ways in which as I'm um, eating that food or choosing to put that food in my body or not in my body, um, how is that contesting and challenging um, both the, those knowledges and ultimately perhaps the authorities in which they are rested, in short? So biopolitical processes are not, I contend, centred solely around multiple sites, as implied by Wright and Howard, but are also brought to the fore empirically, experientially and conceptually at certain moments or as I define them here as biopedagogical encounters. 
and I'm unpacking as I work through the book, I'm unpacking kind of certain encounters. Whilst recognising that the practices of um, knowledge production, internal surveillance and self-governance are constant and continuous, I want to suggest that there are certain encounters, moments in time, when biopedagogical relations become more evidently realised and visible to those subjected to them. Um, And I've been thinking about moments a lot recently um, in relation to another project on food media. And it's this sense that kind of we we have all of the, we hear all of these discourses, you know, both within the media and beyond, but this was specifically came out of a project on food media. Um, They're telling us what and what not to eat, but there are, and we're exploring whether there are actual moments that are viscerally felt when this can be just white noise but then there are moments when you feel that food or that knowledge and it's at that moment when you're feeling that food in your body that the recognition of that relationship with either the chef or the media or the public health official um, comes to the fore and as that starts to come to the fore um, the extent that then that opens up uh, moments of possibility to contest those Um, so really it's kind of thinking about um, the ways in which the mechanisms that pedagogues use and the ways people respond to them and how they are felt at certain moments and viscerally felt at certain moments and what those moments do, rather than it just constantly being a continuous noise. Um, so in that sense, I'm starting to wonder whether eating can then be framed as kind of triggering this biopedagogical moment or a biopedagogical encounter that brings these relationships very much to the fore in the body and also potentially kind of in, in the consciousness Framing these eating events as encounters then does two things for me. First, it makes a distinction between eating as mindful political action, um, as is so often the case as represented in alternative food networks and ethical food consumption, and the often an incidental and haphazard ways that eating mediates food's um, knowledge power dynamics without the eater consciously endeavouring to change the political and economic system or structures of the contemporary food system. I'm cautious here, returning to, um, whilst acknowledging that the personal can be intensely political, I'm cautious here to return to Goodman's uh, warning of overstating the change that individual eaters can affect through their ingestion preferences, or even assuming their desire to do so, which is so often the case in the AFN literature. Secondly, encounters encapsulates how eating is contingent on multiple relationalities and assemblages between matter, bodies and knowledges that are emanated and animated by food body pedagogues in a particular place and time. And I think kind of we can see, think of the Battle of Rawmarsh as being one of those encounters when, they came, when these things come to the fore. Food body pedagogues are further located at different scales that permeate domestic and public life. From the family and the household to health and education professionals, to food activists, the state, the media and the market. And, as suggested, knowledges that emanate from such pedagogues at times overlap and align while others compete and contradict. Moreover, a range of mechanisms um, and strategies are utilised to influence eaters. Such measures may be strident and self-evident, such as banning certain foods or increasing taxes on those deemed undesirable, or they may be disguised and wrapped in other relations such as care, kinship and affection, as uh, some of you will know because you've just contributed in a chapter on a book on care. They may also be consciously constructed and explicit, as in the case of public health messages, or they may be in- more insidious and seemingly intuitive, such as the promotion of local and heritage food, which is what I'm going to pick up on the second half of this paper. As such, food body pedagogues and their truths and ideas about eating may appear benign and benevolent, just as they seem a transparently political. All, however, look to influence what an individual eater draws into their own body, and in turn, they shape and constitute elements of that body. But rather than occupying discrete spaces, um, my jumping off point is the premise that multiple biopedagogue sites and um, biopedagogues discursively blend into one another and are enmeshed just as much as they are constructed as distinct. 
Um, and what I'm trying to do in, in the book is kind of work through various different scales, from the family to you know, from the household to the, to the media to the market to food activists. Um, but thinking about these as kind of being adding another layer of complexity into the mix rather than thinking of them as all occupying very discrete, neat scales that kind of neatly all line up against each other. Um, so really I'm thinking about the ways these multiple relationalities emerge and coalesce around an individual eating encounter. Returning briefly to raw mush then, we can start to see that although such encounters are popularly framed as a battle between two diametrically opposed sides, um, the reality is far more nuanced and the individual eater is entangled in a network of agents of food body pedagogues, materialities and knowledges, um, as well as critically, I think, being one themselves alongside the food that's being eaten. Right, that's the first half done. I'm going to kind of move into the more kind of ethnographic uh, material and try and link these two things together. So previously I've examined the ways in which members of a household um, in the context of Highland Ecuador, particularly mothers, work to produce kinned bodies, mainly in a, with, um, with migrants, through their feeding practices and the ingestion of shared subs- very particular shared substances and have sought to illuminate the, p- the power dynamics that are at play in these sorts of processes. Here what I want to do is extend this argument by identifying and interrogating similar processes at a different site and scale, that of the local community, though I'm going to pick back up on the household as well. In particular, I want to consider how local political and community leaders position themselves as food body pedagogues through the encounter of food fairs. In addition, I want to interrogate the ways in which individual eaters and feeders uphold and potentially challenge such lessons through their bodily engagement with the foods being celebrated. In so doing, I'm aiming to demonstrate that knowledge claims that are premised on sameness, as in terms of our food, um, through this impar- you know, and, and through our food and the apparent sharing or material ingestion of our food, um, and the mutual you know, consequent mutual co-production of kin bodies, actually obfuscate the construction of otherness and difference. I'm therefore working to tease out how matter, bodies and knowledge intersect during such encounters to elucidate how seemingly mutual celebrations of our food actually work to establish social distance and um, social distance through knowledge-powered dynamics. So it was the health fair um, in the village of Hima, which is a small rural community in the southern Ecuadorian Andes. Attached to the event was a series of impromptu stalls set up by villagers selling comida typica, which is defined as um, local typical food and a cookery competition that centred on the local delicacies of koi, which is roast guinea pig, and chicha, which is maize beer. As the community members congregated around the primary school playground for the judging of the contest, the head teacher of the secondary school, and the fact that it is in an education setting hasn't escaped my notice, but I'm starting to wrap my brains going, actually, I think that's really the only place in the village where that sort of event could take place. There's a danger that I overanalyze there. Um, and the secondary school, who was also the chair of the Tourist Foundation that organised the fair, um, gave a brief history lesson. And included in this history lesson was this statement. And he's talking particularly about koi and chicha. These are our traditional foods. The Incas were here, but not for very long. Before the area, all at Zigzig Canton, which in which Hima is part, was Kanyari. And it is our Kanyari traditions and Kanyari foods that live on today. The mestizo, the mixed-race town of Hima, has Kanyari origins and traditions, and this gives us our culture. He then continued to explain that it was crucial that Hermenios continue to prepare and eat our traditional foods, especially as they were under threat, and his terms threat, from exogenous forces, such as fast food chains and North American culture. This is an area that's had a high level of remittances, outward migration to the US and remittance incomes, which has shaped the, um, the area significantly. 
Um, that they, under threat then in this context, refers not only to the food, but also to Hermenio culture more widely, uh, the community and the villages, and I want to pick up that point later. Measures to counteract such threats included the Taurus Foundation banning foods such as hamburgers, beers and fries at the fair, which you may think is reasonable for a health fair. So the reason for this, according to one of my participants, was because then, in her words, they're not good for you, for your body. So, so far, so normative. She also pointed out, however, that they are also foods that aren't from here, they're from the USA. In contrast to foods celebrated, while not necessarily being normatively healthier by nutritional methods, I've never done an analysis of koi, for instance, or maize beer, um, but it's a pretty fatty meat, and they're also selling deep-fried empanadas cheese pastries. So, um, But they were, of course, from here. Moreover, the dishes of the choices valorised in the competition is not incidental. As I've demonstrated elsewhere, koi is a particularly potent dish that is laden with sociality and plays a significant role through its circulation and ingestion um, in defining the boundaries of social networks. When consumed within a household setting, it is only eaten with those individuals with whom you have a deep social relation, and it is understood by my research participants to deepen those bonds in ways that go beyond mere commensality. Preparing koi for kin and household members is an intricate time-consuming, labour-intensive and embodied process in which those who are killing, preparing and cooking the meat imbue their own essence in the matter, which is ultimately then ingested by their kin. To this end, domestic servants and those who are not members of the household are excluded from not only eating the meat, but also preparing it. Um, And just so you have a sense of what I'm talking about here... um, these are ones that were kind of prepared earlier. Each one of these takes about 45 minutes to prepare by hand after you've slaughtered um, them and dunked them and plucked them. Um, you then have to very much kind of, and I still kind of recreate it, it's such an embodied experience. Um, you basically, with a, with, preferably with a rock, but also you can use a knife, the smallest are kind of nicks in the skin, and then you pull it open, and then you basically get in all the guts and you kind of pull out um, the intestines little bit by little bit. Uh, it's really delicate. So you're working with the, with the animal, uh, well, I don't know if it's still animal now, de- uh, meat, for about um, 45 minutes, kind of really intricately before you roast it. Um, and then you roast it at home. It's always roasted in back gardens, always hidden, um, always on poles that you then, they're always loitering around the garden and bonfire. And bonfire is, is, it captures the taste. Um, koi cooked over a bonfire is, is, is acknowledged locally to kind of taste better and I pick up notions of, of taste. And in the end, that's how it's served with potatoes and, and corn. Um, always about three types of carbohydrate in a good Ecuadorian meal. Um, and I'm conscious that this is very much about kind of preparing meat, but I actually think still that that doesn't... I'm not negating that other, the other embodied encounters, such as preparing meat or preparing food, aren't important. They are in kind of imbuing the cook, as it were, the essence of the cook, into the meat. Um, but it's that moment of eating that, for me, is that critical moment where that essence kind of gets incorporated and ingested. Cooking and eating koi within the home thus produces kinned bodies, which are incorporated into the household, and I've made this argument in a previous paper... This is further illustrated by Sonia, who is my landlady, who drew attention to her son's greedy passion for koi. 
Uh, one evening. Look at him eat. How many pieces is that? Three or four. Pablito always eats so much koi. When he was little, you know, very young, one or two years old, I can't imagine he would eat koi as a one-year-old, but never mind. He would always want koi. Mammy, he would say, when can we have koi? When are we having koi today, Mammy, he would say. He loves it. It's because he is a son of Hema. He's a good Hemenyo. That is why he loves his koi. And the only reason I've underlined son there is I'm thinking there might be something there about citizenship and, and, and genealogy, but uh, I haven't quite kind of thought that through yet. Here, regional belonging appears to be inscribed and enacted through consumption, or more accurately, the ingestion and incorporation to build on Fisher of koi. Pablo just, just does not like koi because he is a son of Hema. He is made a son of Hema, I'd argue, through the eating of koi. And actually, I think my participants make that um, comment too. His passion, his passion is not a mere reflection of his being and belonging, but actively works to construct it. As such, drawing on Moll's notion of transubstantiation, the Jimeno meat of the koi is broken down and forms part of Pablo's body, making his body in turn Jimeno. His greed, then, can be regarded as an eater's desire to be made in a certain mould, an expression of his, eater's, of, the, of his agency, and that, of that, of, um, that potentially of the meat itself. The efficacy of eating thus becomes apparent with desire and the social requirement to express it through bodily action emerging as core principles in this context. This affect and effect of eating koi was further recognised by my research participants who urged me not only to eat koi but also to expressively enjoy it. As Theresa said to me, um, don't worry if you don't like it. This is the first time I um, had it. It has a strange taste, but keep eating it. You will learn to like it. The more you eat it, the more you will like it. They're a little bit like olives in that respect. Um, you have to like it. You'll be more like us then. You will be Hermenia, in her words. Koi then appears to have a vital essence to make individuals, even those originating from exogenous places such as myself, or living in exogenous places such as uh, male migrants, Hermenio. Its matter is understood to act in a certain way once ingested into the body, shaping that body into a particular local form. What's more, eating koi draws multiple bodies, the eater, the preparer, and that of the koi itself, into an assemblage. It further draws together knowledges about the dish, enmeshing it with vital... With in meshing it with material substances. These knowledges that koi is traditional and special, that eating it and desiring it makes you hermenu and defines your place within the household, is critical, I want to argue, in shaping the affect of koi. Granted, without this knowledge being held by the eater, the substance of koi can be understood, at least conceptually, to make and fashion the eater's body, with or without their conscious um, recognition. And the eater may feel the effect of that substance in the taste, the texture, and their visceral response. So here we have ontological agency in many respects. We can conceptualise that. Yet whether the eater feels hemenio or feels part of the household by ingesting koi is a different question without this knowledge. To feel this affect, the eater needs to have access to the attendant knowledges about koi and possibly locate their own truth in the multiple knowledges that circulate about the meat that may differ. Without this knowledge, the meat's vitalism... I'm, I, I'm arguing, is diminished and it becomes just another meat. Returning to Jessica Hayes-Conroy then, matter and meaning are combined, or in my terms, the vitalism of matter is bounded by this knowledge. So here I think we have kind of political agency, and this is where I'm kind of getting more kind of speculative, um, but this is where I'm kind of taking this, and probably with some autoethnographic reflections if I can indulge in that, but not now. Um, moreover, there are other some substances at play here, such as those that go into the meat itself, including local grass. Um, and there's a very strong discourse that the meat has to ha be the koi's, the koi's themselves have to be have to be eating local grass, and they're normally taken from the back garden. The act, um, these act to compound the himenyoness of the koi. 
and in turn the eater, rooting them to place. My participants identified this rootedness, this hemenyoness in the taste of the meat, telling me consistently that koi from elsewhere did not taste as good as that from Hema. The reason given for this was the grass the animals ate and the ways the hemenyos themselves prepared and cooked the meat. These statements, of course, can be attributed to local pride, um, and it may be possible, depending on an individual's experience of eating koi elsewhere, to discern a material difference between the meat of Hema and another place. My interest lies, however, in the ways that physical taste here is a rubric through which hemenyonus is located. It is only upon eating the meat, tasting its substance in the mouth, that the knowledge that it is truly from here, Hema appears to be made manifest. The knowledge, therefore, is made real and takes its form and potentially influence through the matter. So it is in this confluence of matter, knowledge and bodies that a food's seeming capacity to fend off exogenous threats takes shape. Um, and I think this is demonstrated um, further in a, a you know, kind of in a different ethnographic context by Trasthern's account of a Kastong village in the um, Vanuatu Peninsula, in which she highlights that bodies are subject to being lost to the outside world. This is in Gender of the Gift. In this ethnographic context, male migrants who are eating the foreign rice of food, um, sorry, foreign rice, foreign foods of rice, tinned fish, and corned beef, instead of the yams of home, are, are seen to be particularly at risk um, of being weakened. Yet their bodies can also be strengthened and replenished during the yam harvest. Shatter thereby not only points to the labour of women in strengthening body boundaries, which is a point that I kind of want to continue return to later on, um, though probably not in this paper, but demonstrates how the consumption of symbolically important local food is understood to, to, understood to counteract the dangers that exogenous foods present. The body here, then, echoing mole, is constructed as having semi-permeable boundaries. It is always at risk of being absorbed into other worlds as its boundaries become too open and stretched too far by the foods of others. Through this lens, and that of Sonia's encouragement of Pablito's eating, the community leaders celebrating and urging the ingestion of koi at the Hema House Fair can be seen to be attempting to not only inscribe regional belonging onto the bodies of those congregated, but also to produce sameness through the production of conterminous bodies united through shared substance. In providing specific food body knowledges about foods from here, they work to construct, reinforce and maintain the boundaries of the community by repelling the dangerous foods from there. In turn, this works to shape the bodies of the villagers into, in a particular way, as Hemenyo. In sum, by encouraging the villagers to eat koi, the organisers appear to be concomitantly reasserting the boundaries of the individual and social body. Cultural fairs and community celebrations of our traditional food can consequently be understood as a political act um, that provides another layer of knowledge and meaning to a foodstuff that in turn particularly, uh, potentially enhances its vitalism or the vitalism of its matter. Um, it further, let me just check where I am with time. Okay, I'll just finish off. Um, it further draws that food into a wider assemblage of meaning, social relations and political dynamics. Moreover, this partnership of matter and meaning is not uncommonly located in the idiom of taste. Community-level celebrations thereby interplay um, with those discourses found in the domestic sphere and in the context of Hema they appear to align, although this is not always the case. And actually, as I kind of then go on to, to argue, um, it's not actually the case always in Hema either. Um, but, yeah. So questions thus emerge as to whether eating a food at home and valuing it in the same way as community leaders value it is tantamount to upholding the knowledge, claims and truths of those leaders, and in turn whether this creates and upholds the political authority of those leaders. And this is kind of the thinking that I haven't yet kind of worked through because 
again, trying. I'm really cautious of making those sorts of assumptions and those sorts of slippage assumptions. The image of sameness that is implied in our food is, however, in the notion of our food, is, however, illusory, or certainly it is in the context of HEMA, as just as difference is created between here and there in terms of local and exogenous, um, it is also established by them and us in terms of food, body, not pedagogue, and those being taught. Returning to the HEMA health fair, it is one group, the community leaders, who are urging the villagers to eat koi amongst other traditional foods. They, however, are arguably less inclined to consume the dish themselves, in part because of its continuing low-status associations. Um, they eat far more commonly in fast-food restaurants and fusion restaurants and other types of traditional restaurants um, it, that are more middle-class, as it were. Um, the ourness of our food, and the extent to which it includes the dishes of choice for all the community, is thus called into question. In other words, some members of the community are making themselves, are made and are attempted to be made as kin bodies by eating the same matter, whereas others remove themselves from this process and remain on the other side of what Ray would call the gustatory boundary. Moreover, as the HEMA health fair suggests, those on the other side of this boundary are the very social actors attempting to teach others, in this case Hemenios, to eat the Hemenio foods. Um, and this parallels, but I think has subtle differences between um, with the literature on ethical foods or AFNs, for example, or also kind of um, you know, the Battle of Raw Marsh and Jamie Oliver. So it's much a case of rather than me teaching you to eat the food that I ostensibly eat, I'm teaching you to eat the food that you ostensibly eat and are in danger of not eating any longer. So I'm going to encourage you to carry on eating that food, but I wouldn't personally touch it. So there's a creation of distance here. This social distancing from our food by the food body pedagogues thereby places the burden of upholding food traditions and creating the matter of food in a particular form onto specific social actors, often those from the lower rural classes and or women and those from specific ethnic groups. Um, And this is, I think, the case in a lot of kind of the, the heritage food literature as well. This links back to, for me, to the boundaries and the semi-permeability of both the individual and the social body, that here it's kind of certain groups that are required to perform the labour of policing these boundaries. There's also, I think, here um, a subtle difference in the labour of biopedagogy. Teaching others what to eat and actually growing, cooking and feeding food are two very different entities. Both groups, I think, kind of, you know, here in this case the community leaders and and Sonia, both groups are charging matter with vitalism through their actions, um, as well as potentially limiting and defining the boundaries of matter's assemblage. Um, However, they're not doing it in the same way. And for me, I think this might be thinking about the different types of labour here, might be a way of... um, extending discussions of biopedagogy um, and biopower. Um, and then what I... Um, and so I'm kind of pretty much going to um, leave it there on that note because I don't have a nice, neat conclusion to wrap up all of those threads, I'm afraid. Um, but simply just to kind of tease you, as it were, um, I then want to think... This is Sonia's stall, actually, at the health fair. And one of the things I'm starting to think about here is this is very different way of, of preparing the meat. And um, this is a, one of her domestic servants... Um, this is a very different way even though she's badging it as typical food of the region um, it's the taste of food of the region actually as well um, she's, she's creating it, she's producing it preparing it in a very different way using these things like spit roast as a, compared to in the, in the context of the home so I'm thinking there and also she's bringing up basically her entire kitchen um, which subverted the meaning of the health fair so we see these um, introduction of exogenous influences in very different ways. She might have banned hamburgers, but you know, she still managed to get all of these displays of her modernity out there through the contents of her kitchen. And I'm thinking about the way that that potentially changes the matter of the meat 
Um, and, it, and then ultimately its meaning and it, its vitalism and possibly whether the meat then changes the matter of the, um, of the kitchen equipment but that might be taking it a stage too far. Thank you. Thank you.